This is Inside the Military Mind, addressing mental health and wellness for service members, veterans, and their families with your host, Wayne Franz. Brought to you by Family Care Center, offering behavioral health services for both children and adults and specializing in services for military families and veterans. Family Care Center, our family caring for your family. Now, here's Dwayne Franz. Hello and welcome to Inside the Military Mind. My name is Dwayne France, and each week we'll be talking about mental health and wellness for the military-affiliated population. Coming up in today's guest segment, I'll be having a conversation with Dr. Emily Rademan of Peak Mind Consulting. Later, I'll be sharing the Homefront Military Network resource of the week, the Pikes Peak Workforce Center. On this week's Insight segment of the show, I'm going to be talking about some common perceptions of veterans in the media and in our communities. Our show is brought to you by the Family Care Center, the community's leading provider of outpatient behavioral health for service members, veterans, and their families. Those who serve our country deserve the best that their community can offer. When it comes to mental health and wellness, it's important for them to work with someone that they can trust and that can understand their unique challenges and needs related to mental health. Whether you're looking for individual counseling, couples counseling, or management and consultation regarding mental health medications, you'll find what you need at the Family Care Center. Take some time to focus on you by going to fcsprings.com and allow our family to care for you and your family. On today's Insights into the Military Mind, I'd like to talk about the public perception of veterans and some of the stereotypes that veterans may be perceived as. A colleague of mine once told a story of frustration that I've heard from many veterans in therapy. The colleague talked about a veteran that he was working with, and the veteran said, people want to go to the movies to see the combat stuff, American Sniper, and things like that. But if I talk about the same thing at the neighborhood barbecue, they look at me like I'm crazy. A lot of veterans I talk to feel the same way. They see the community rally around the concept of veterans, but don't always feel the same support for the veteran individually. We can say all we want that we support veterans returning from war, but do we actually do that? Does the community rally around the flag and thank veterans for their service, but when it comes to real action, is it there? Unfortunately, there seems to be little data to back up the prevailing wisdom of what veterans believe to be true. There don't seem to be studies on current public perceptions of veterans. There are some polls that show that perceptions have shifted from how people viewed Vietnam veterans, of course, but actual research on the true public perception of military service seems lacking. Regardless of the research, however, I've heard repeated examples of this. First, the dreaded thank you for your service. In his article, Heroes and Monsters, Marine Corps veteran Sebastian Bay states, Thank you for your service represents the banality of society's understanding of the nation's wars and the men and women who fought in them. A Vietnam veteran once told me that it surprises him that current era veterans don't want to hear thank you for your service. In his mind, Vietnam veterans would have loved to hear that when they returned home. But he also recognized that while the words are there, they often seem meaningless. As I've mentioned before, I serve as a mental health provider for our local veteran treatment court. The presiding judge, the Honorable David Shakes, who is a combat veteran himself, has a statement that he tells every veteran entering the program. Thank you for your service, he says. I know that doesn't mean much from people who have never served, but coming from a fellow veteran, it means a lot. My reaction to this phrase is similar to many of my fellow Iraq and Afghanistan veterans. I do appreciate the intent behind the sentiment, but it bothers me. When I happen to bring up my military service in a conversation, it's usually to add context to what I'm saying or to emphasize a point. But in the middle of what I'm saying, I'm invariably interrupted with, well, thank you for your service. You know, I appreciate that, but I'm not looking for appreciation at that point. I'm looking for understanding. And many veterans appear to feel the same way. Another factor that could be impacting how veterans are perceived is the NIMBY effect. 
The concept of the NIMBY effect, which stands for not in my backyard, is often applied to facilities, infrastructure, and services. We know that we need a place to dump our garbage, but we don't want the town dump in the middle of the business district. Often this makes sense. Community zone areas is industrial and residential for a reason. I grew up a mile away from the St. Louis airport, and I can tell you that the sounds of airplanes were constant. The NIMBY effect is described as opposition to those things that are socially necessary, but have a negative connotation. Garbage dumps, substance abuse recovery centers, and veterans? This goes to the concept of, we love veterans, but from afar. The wider population knows, in general, that a standing military is socially necessary, and military service in general has a positive connotation. But veterans in the specific may have a negative connotation. The things like the stereotypes of villain, victim, or hero that I'll talk about in a minute. The crazy homeless combat vet. We can also talk about the experiences of veterans in the workplace. Veterans often hear of other veterans who struggle in the workplace due to common misconceptions. I often describe it as we love veterans unless we know that one's sitting in the cubicle next to us. Veteran Garrett Wilkerson describes his own experience in his article being one of those weird veterans in the workplace. In that article, he states, a co-worker responsible for training me began to use questionable language when explaining things to me. He would say things like, if you feel like you're going to have a moment, you can walk around the building to cool off. Do people here have moments, he thought? Is that a thing? On another occasion, his supervisor told him that if he ever felt overwhelmed with all the new information, Garrett should be mindful to not blow up on the other employees. Garrett thought this was strange given that this co-worker knew very little about him or his temperament outside of the fact that he was a veteran. Researchers have looked at this issue. In a study that looked at whether employees were prepared to hire, accommodate, and retain veterans with disabilities in the workforce, the research shows that wanting to support veterans is not enough. There are gaps between desire and action. In the article, the authors state, Overall, our findings indicate, though employers do have a goodwill in this area, goodwill alone may not be enough to ensure that workplaces are geared up to enable veterans with disabilities to fully contribute their talents on the job. The fact is that the application of support for veterans does not always coincide with the express support for veterans. But why is that? When we talk about public perception, the way people see veterans are usually divided into three groups. Villain, victim, or hero. Let that sink in a minute. Five, eight, fifteen, or twenty-plus years of service boiled down to three labels. Not father, not daughter, not therapist, for example, if that's what fits. No, just three neat categories that a veteran should fit into. When there's an act of violence, a workplace shooting, for example, or some sensational crime, then the stereotype is that of a villain. It's the idea that a veteran is somehow unstable and violent and are a danger to those that work around them. Whenever I hear of another instance of workplace or school violence, I say to myself, please don't let this be another veteran. Because if it is, it's sometimes prominently featured. I don't know that this was always the case. Charles Whitman and John Allen Muhammad were both in the military. I wasn't around when Whitman killed 16 people at the University of Texas, but I recall the events around the D.C. sniper shooting in 2002. While John Allen Muhammad's service was mentioned, it wasn't highlighted as a cause or an impetus for his rampage. Another of the categories, roundly rejected by some veterans, is the idea of the veteran as a victim. One that, because they deployed to combat, they're somehow broken or damaged in some way, and therefore must be given greater consideration. I experienced this at a weekend retreat that had attendees from a bunch of different backgrounds. One gentleman said, one gentleman who wasn't a veteran said, I was really looking forward to this weekend, hanging out with a bunch of combat veterans. Helping others is what I do. 
I've always wanted to help out the stray dog or the broken winged bird. This is more closely aligned with how the social services are helping community seize veterans, fragile individuals that must be coddled and protected. And some veterans may feed into this themselves. I once read a story in which a veteran was told that he couldn't raise chickens in his backyard because it violated some type of community ordinance. The individual thought that he should be allowed to do it solely on the basis that he was a veteran. There are times when veterans buy into a sense of entitlement, that they're entitled to get what they want on the basis of their veteran status. I don't know about you, but I only want what I was promised, and nowhere in my enlistment contract did it say that I'd be able to raise a flagpole or chickens in my yard if community laws prohibited it. Strangely enough, the third label, hero, is also rejected by many veterans I talked to. In 2016, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Kettles received the Congressional Medal of Honor decades after braving a hot landing zone in order to extract 40 members of the 101st Airborne Division. In one article, Lieutenant Colonel Kettles is said to have focused on the other men involved in the rescue. The only thing that really matters are the lives that were saved. Look through the media accounts of those veterans, current and former, who received the Medal of Honor, and you'll see a theme. It wasn't about me. I'm not a hero. They were. Most veterans reject the hero label as much as they reject the victim or villain label. Why is this, though? Because we're just us. We're screwed up, regular, weird, goofy humans who defy description because we're a bunch of individuals. We are not what we are labeled as, and we're not even what we seem to be sometimes. When I talk to veterans who are twisted up in their gut because of something they did or something they failed to do while deployed to combat, I suggest to them that they reject the label that they're giving themselves or the labels that others give them. We're not our actions. We're not monsters, although some have done some monstrous things. We're not heroes, although we may have done some heroic things. Now, I get the sense that this may seem a bit rantish, and it probably is, because this is a frustration that I hear from many veterans in different areas. What role do veterans play in the public perception, however? The more the public misperceives veterans, the more veterans will pull away. That simply contributes to the growing gap between those who served and those who haven't. Just as with any other awareness, the individuals who make up the group that wants people to understand have a responsibility to conduct themselves in such a way that doesn't perpetuate the stereotype. In this way, stepping into the gap, we can change perceptions individually and as a whole. So I appreciate you taking some time to listen to some of these insights. Do you agree? Disagree? It would be great to hear your thoughts. Share them with us by dropping an email to militarymind at FCCSprings.com. Today's interview segment is with Dr. Emily Rademan, a clinical psychologist practicing in Colorado Springs. Dr. Rademan approaches mental health with a progressive and unique approach. In her opinion, seeking to improve mental health includes mind performance and does not necessarily mean a mental illness. Dr. Rademan serves on the board of directors for the Colorado Psychological Association and the Advisory Council for Operation TBI Freedom in Colorado Springs, which is a program of Craig Hospital that provides support for veterans and active military personnel with traumatic brain injury. She also volunteers with hospice and teaches psychology as an adjunct professor at Lindenwood University. Let's get into my conversation with Emily and come back afterwards to talk about this week's Homefront Military Network Resource of the Week. So as a psychologist, you've been working with clients in our community for a number of years. I'm interested in hearing about how you got into the field of mental health and about your work with service members, veterans, and their families. The classic, why did you become a therapist mm -hmm. question. So I would say it's multifaceted. I will always tell people that at the age of 15, I already knew that I wanted to be a psychologist. Mm -hmm. And I would declare that to anyone and I always stuck with it. But there's a number of things that I think really led me to that place. So coming from a very rural community, there was just 
on both sides of my family, intergenerational patterns of trauma, Mm -hmm. mental health symptoms. And at 15, I didn't understand that, but I knew I saw the world differently. I knew I was like, why are people engaging this way? Um, So that was part of it. And then I was lucky lucky enough to take a psychology class in high school. Mm -hmm. And in that class, I read Sybil, which is the classic like multiple Mm -hmm. personality story. But then I also started reading Mindhunter, which they actually made a Netflix series about. Mm -hmm. And it looked at FBI serial killer profiling. And I really became interested in the mind. How do we predict behavior? How do we understand why people got there? And then how do we get them out of that? And so that was really when I solidified it. It was the mind is so interesting to me, why people do what they do, what brings people happiness, and then what causes people to hurt each other. Mm. And so that led me into it. And how I ended up working with veterans and service members I always joke on this one, too, is my undergrad mentor, who was the head of my psych department, retired Army Colonel Bruce Kelly. Mm -hmm. I was his student aide. And when I was coming to Colorado for the first year of my pre-doc residency, I had said I would never work with military Mm. because they the research shows only about 25 percent of psychologists are comfortable working with military. Mm -hmm. We're not trained in it. We don't take a class in it. And I think that's changing now. But the perceptions that I had of service members were not positive. Mm. I came from a rural environment. I had maybe one uncle who served in the Navy, but nobody talked about it. So like a lot of people, I had no idea what a service member actually was in their daily life. Hmm. So I move here and and retired um, Army Colonel Bruce Kelly says, good luck. Let me know how that goes. So my my first week of my, my pre-doc, I get assigned to Operation TBI Freedom, which hmm. is a local nonprofit uh, that works with OIF, OEF veterans with brain injuries. And I was going to teach uh, anger management. And like a good resident, I said, yes, I'll do whatever you need. And I walked into that, that class and I, I said, hey, look, I know nothing about military life. I know nothing about what you've been through, but I know a lot about mental health. So you teach me and I'll teach you. And from that moment forward, I started to build this skill set to understand their experiences, to see things very differently, and to really become an advocate for the military. And since that time, I have done numerous continuing eds, outreach, community involvement. And I would say now 80 to 90% of my caseload is either active service, prior service, reserves, guard, and it's really become my area of specialty and um, understanding the uniqueness of that culture because it's very different than the vast majority mm-hmm. of normal American life. It's very interesting. Really, first, uh, people, many of us have lived experience in our lives, family members that you said, intergenerational trauma, um, but then partnering with that curiosity, which is what led you to, it, it's what makes people take the step from being a mental health, just somebody who's curious to being a mental health professional. Um, but. Also, that shift from I'm not really sure, I'm hesitant to working with veterans to now that's all of what I do. Um, I wonder how you feel about how that shift has occurred over time. Oh, and that's where I go a little hippy-dippy as a therapist and just trusting that the universe, um, the field as a whole, that I'm always being guided to where I can best serve Mm -hmm. and always taking the opportunities. So when someone came to me and was like, hey, will you present to these veterans on anger management or develop more classes? It was always yes. Yes, I'll try it. And that's the way I approach life in general. If there's an opportunity, I'll try it. And if I see that I can make a difference and that that's where it clicks, 
I, I jump head in or feet first, whatever you call it, and really start to learn as much as I can. I love what I do. Mm. I can't imagine working primarily a different population. Mm -hmm. And I, and I say this, and I don't mean it to be in a corny way at all, but that's my way of serving. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I was just joking before you came in that I would have never signed up to be in the military. Mm -hmm. But every service member that sits in front of me, I will tell them it's my honor to serve them. And it's my kind of unique way of serving our country mm -hmm. by serving these veterans who went out and did things that I could never see myself doing. So I would say I'm, I'm proud of the shift and the growth that I have done in order to, to provide appropriate healing care for our service members. I think that's something I've, I've heard a number of different times from clinicians who may not have served, right? That, that they see this as a measure of service. I mean, that's what mental health professionals do is we wanna be of service and healing to others. Uh, but really to take that to another step of saying that um, I didn't serve in the military or I didn't serve as a first responder, but I'm serving those who served and that satisfies a need for you to be connected to that greater patriotic service. Oh, most definitely. And especially knowing that a lot of therapists are fearful to work with veterans. Mm -hmm. And I believe not only veterans, but everyone deserves quality, compassionate care and to feel comfortable hearing the atrocities of war. That can be hard for, for therapists to hear that. And so, yeah, it's, it's an honor for me to, to serve them. In it's that interesting way. you mentioned that 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 word fearful and yeah. um, I've I've presented and, and even presented clips to some clinicians gathered and I said that uh, if you can't get through this movie or this clip without feeling uncomfortable no problem right then th this might not be the population for you but yeah. and you even mentioned that you were a little hesitant going for what do you think that that fearfulness is on the side of the clinician why that may exist I would say, again, a number of reasons. Veterans depicted in the media are depicted as angry or violent mm -hmm. or that they'll have outbursts and destroy things. So I think I was part of that. I mm -hmm. saw this service member community as violent or angry and aggressive and not wanting to change. And that's not the truth at all. I have very rarely had a veteran, even with the most severe trauma, ever be aggressive toward me. Mm -hmm. But I think what it is, is their intensity, mm -hmm. the, the intensity that helped them do what they, they did and to survive and then come back, that can be too much for some. But I would say for me, it was fear. It was, can I handle the stories or their experiences and am I safe? Mm -hmm. Well, now mm -hmm. I know for sure. Right. I feel safer with my veterans than anything because when we give anyone a basic level of respect, they're not aggressive or violent towards mm -hmm. us. And I think the media, movies, and TV shows can do us a disservice when they present service members with PTSD, with that classic Hollywood version of throwing things, breaking things, and, and harming people. And that's not it at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think those misconceptions that exist, um, even though we would hope that we would set aside that kind of judgment against, you know, as mental health professionals, but I've heard colleagues that say, I don't want to work with justice-involved individuals. Or some individuals say, I don't want to work with, you know, uh, sexual, uh, you know, um, uh, predators or something like that. Or, or like Mindhunter, right? You know, serial killers, right? And, and, but, but then again, I think that 
some people who have that mindset, but then veterans say, well, are you putting me in the same category as a criminal or a, you know, uh, uh, somebody who is a serial killer? Um, and that creates an othering that almost creates distrust for us, for our, for our profession. Most definitely. Um, and it would be interesting if I did some research to find what the average therapist thinks or the average U.S. citizen um, and to to combat the fact that veterans are not necessarily angry or aggressive or violent. Mm. They've seen more than a lot of us have ever seen. Mm-hmm. And I think that's scary, too. Um, because I think people in general, if if they sit down and they hear what what happens outside of our awareness, that might cause them to see the world much more different. So I wonder how much that plays into it is not wanting to know that darkness of the world that exists. And maybe it's too much. I think that is a good point, too, is that if veterans by their nature have have a very global mindset, right? I mean, I spent probably, well, I know that I spent over half of my career overseas and somehow either six years in Germany or deployed. Um, and so we're exposed to different cultures, right? We're we're even taken out of our, our home culture and, you know, sent to the South or, or sent to the, you know, the Dakotas or something like we're taken out of an environment. And so veterans have a broader worldview and people who don't have that broader world worldview may not understand that or even be intimidated by that. I would definitely say there's fear. And I mean, we could go into the classic psychological research on in-group and out-group. Mm-hmm. And I would agree to to think about, and you can see this playing out in in all of society right now in the U.S., is this fear of shifting culture. And what does that mean? Who am I if I interact with a new way of living? Or if I encounter this new culture, well, then what does it mean about the culture I came from? Mm. And that can be tough for people to to look at. Mm. But, I, but I agree. I mean, I think there's that idea of... Um, the the clinician being comfortable right but if there is fear on the clinician of i'm i'm uncertain right there's there's hesitancy yeah uh but also on the client is just as fearful too veterans don't need much of a reason to avoid therapy and if they think their therapist is afraid of them well i don't need more of that and so in, in therapists really need to understand to work with this population you need to understand that this is some challenging work. Yeah. yeah. And I would agree. And I've received that feedback from a number of different service members where they say like they shared a combat story and they saw the look of fear mm. on that therapist's face. Mm-hmm. And a number of times I've had service members come in uh, to that first or second appointment and they'll dump a whole lot of combat and I'll pause and I'll look at them and I'll say, that's a lot. What would you like my response to be? Mm-hmm. And I've had them say, Doc, you're tougher than I thought. (laughs) And I'll say, I wonder if you were testing me Mm -hmm. to see if I could handle that. Mm -hmm. And I think for people who aren't exposed um, to that arena of the world, it can be very fearful. Just like if you were to put me on an ambulance and tell me to go be an EMT for the day, Mm -hmm. I'm going to see a whole lot of blood and probably pass out. So it's, it's this idea of when we're not familiar with that, it can be scary. And a lot of therapists come into the field with our own kind of backgrounds of trauma or Mm -hmm. mental health. And that I think can also play a role. If we haven't addressed what caused us to come into the field, then we can be even more fearful of someone who's sitting in front of us who has these stories of war and Mm -hmm. and violence and death. And I think that's okay because not everybody, every therapist needs to work with veterans, right? Just like 
I don't want to work with teenagers. I have no desire <laughs> to work with. I mean, yeah. I, there are plenty of colleagues that do great work with teens and youth and stuff like that. You give me a three tour combat vet all day long, <laughs> yes. right? Because it's 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 what we're comfortable with. It's what we're we feel competent yeah. in. Yes. So in your work, you approach therapy from a trauma and a cognitive focus framework. Certainly, a lot of people have experienced trauma, but you you mentioned it before as the unique sort of experience of military and veterans. What do you see as the difference between the traumatic exposure of veterans, combat, or maybe just general military that may be different from those who might not have served? Mm -hmm. So I am certified in EMDR, which is one of the gold standard treatments, along with prolonged exposure and cognitive processing therapy. And a lot of the training there takes us to look back at not only the trauma exposures, but what happened earlier in life. So I think what I find to be different with combat veterans is I think there was a study that showed that of infantry, about 80% of them had childhood trauma. Mm -hmm. And in a, in a deployment, it's not just one event on that deployment that is causing trauma, but it's sustained duress. It's It's ongoing every single day, living in a place that is not safe. Now, there are people in the United States who live in unsafe areas and experience a similar level of trauma, but I think it's different to wake up and say, is today the day I die? Mm -hmm. I'm going out on patrol. Am I going to make it back? I'm away from my family. I can't talk to my family. And it's event after event after event. Um, I know I work with some members, service members who've had over 10 deployments. Mm -hmm. The average person can't relate to that to coming home for six months and then you're gone again. So I think that's one thing that's different than some of um, the other people who might have experienced trauma. But then again is the sheer number of traumatic events, the sheer amount of loss of brothers in arms or sisters in arms in addition to the childhood trauma. And it, so it makes this lifespan where it's one event after another. Um, I think that's probably the primary difference. And then also the lack of control. So they sign the paperwork and, and you're signed mm -hmm. up. Whereas sometimes somebody experiences a trauma who's, who's not active service, they can decide to sell their home and leave. Mm -hmm. There's an element of being trapped in it. Or, or even of self-selection into it, right? I signed up for this. Somebody who yes. experiences a, a hurricane, for example. Yeah, I bought a house in Florida, right? But I'm in Houston. I didn't expect the, the hurricanes, right? I didn't expect this damage, but I can... I can place the blame, so to speak, on something else, right? Yes. The, the universe or the hurricane or whatever. Whereas for, for veterans, it's we signed up for this. I volunteered to get punched in the face 17 times, which may yeah. cause a little bit more self-focused um, guilt. Yes. And what I have found in a lot of service members is as they're healing and they go back and I'm heavy on full comprehensive lifespan treatment. So I start literally from the time that they're in the womb because the neurons are already developing. Mm -hmm. And so what world were you birthed into? What did you learn about yourself? And the number of veterans have said, wow, why did I really join? And then they start to make that question. Mm -hmm. And it's hard because on the one hand, as, as this uh, mental health provider, yeah, let's explore that. And on the other, I'm like, but don't question the choice you made. Mm -hmm. You made a difference. Um, and you're right, with self-selection, you they do blame themselves. Um, and there's always the, I should have done this differently. I should have done more. I had this training. Whereas if I get 
hit driving down the highway this afternoon, I, that wasn't, I couldn't have done anything. Mm-hmm. Um, that plays a huge role. And for me, I would, I would always go back to that, that childhood. Right. Um, when I look at the brain being primarily in theta, which is active hypnosis between the ages of one and six, what did that person learn about themselves that may have influenced their joining the military, especially in the infantry branches? And then you go into um, active service with a history of attachment wounding or other trauma, Mm -hmm. and it just piles on. And everybody has a breaking point, the trauma load. It depends on the person where that trauma load is. Yeah. And, and again, I think in the show, we've talked about adverse childhood experiences. Right? Oh, That's yes. specifically mm-hmm. what you're talking about. And studies indicate that the more we have as children, the greater susceptibility we have in later life to a number of different things to include psychological stuff. But the military can be as much a running away from something as it is running towards something. I just wanted yes. to get out of my dad's basement. Right. How do I how yeah. do I you know, how do I move on with my life? It's not whatever it was. Um, but then, like you said, there's a measure of complexity to the trauma, but also the magnitude of the trauma. And those are two different things that are different with military and veteran traumatic exposure is how complicated it gets. Not just, am I going to die today? But many veterans get to the place as well. If I'm going to die today, it's going to be okay because that's protective in that combat environment. Yeah. And then that leads sometimes to impulsive behavior when they get back. Mm -hmm. The kind of, who cares? I'm going up on my next deployment. Let me buy this car and and race down I-25, adding in another level of trauma, jumping off cliff jumping and and these kind of things to feel something and to get that adrenaline rush. And it, it just snowballs. And when we look at the brain in a trauma fight or flight response, that prefrontal cortex shuts off. So they're not able to consequence plan or really be in that moment and control the impulses Mm -hmm. and they take on more and more trauma and partners or their family members get maxed out with the back and forth Mm -hmm. so then you get attachment and relationship wounding and it's their whole life it's it's not like someone maybe who experiences a different traumatic event has that family to come back to Mm -hmm. has that stable job being a service member is everything Mm-hmm. It's in every facet of their life versus maybe another person who's just experiencing trauma now and then versus that can be an entire trauma culture. And I think and it goes back to some of those misconceptions we were talking about before as you know, the, the crazy combat vet where the clinician thinks every vet is John Rambo about to shoot up the town. Yeah. Um, we also, I think, need to be careful not to say that all veterans are, are victims, right? That Correct. we all live in this in- entirely traumatic world and we come back and we're PTSD riddled maniacs on yeah. the other side. Yeah. Um, that there is a lot of resilience that can become from mm-hmm. repeated traumatic exposure and learning about how to handle that in growth. Yes. And I think the most recent stat that I read was about 10% of combat veterans have PTSD. Mm-hmm. So it's it's pretty low in, in consideration. Um, and definitely resilience. And what goes into resilience, I know they do resiliency training. I think some of it's a little bit innate. But then kicking back to that spiritual mm-hmm. understanding. Not necessarily one specific religious belief system, but in making sense of the world in whatever ways you can seeing the small rewards. Um, and you're right. And it, just like why I didn't want to work with veterans in the first place was this misconception that everyone is 
I don't know if you've ever watched St. Vincent, fantastic movie about a very grouchy old veteran. <laughs> and to, to be aware of that, I think you're exactly right. Yeah. And, and I think it's definitely important for anyone listening, veterans who are listening, considering therapy, but also those working with veterans to really sort of um, uh, understand that that those stereotypes aren't accurate. Yeah. So you're listening to Inside the Military Mind with my guest, Dr. Emily Radiman with Peak Mind Consulting. So as you mentioned earlier, some of your earlier work with Operation TBI Freedom, and now you serve as a member of the advisory board, uh, TBI Freedom being a local organization that provides case management support for veterans with traumatic brain injury. TBI is a significant challenge, especially for younger veterans, younger veterans, uh, post 9-11 veterans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the research I read a couple years ago shows a pretty high correlation between brain injury and PTSD. They don't necessarily know which is causing which, um, and I guess we would be splitting hairs on that at this point. But the most important thing about a TBI is you don't necessarily have to lose consciousness. It can be those repeated exposures. And when the brain takes on either a, a minor or a major brain injury, it impacts, as you were mentioning, depression, anxiety, impulse control. Um, a lot of people have difficulties with focus or quite literally pain and sleep. And that can really escalate any mental health symptom that may already be there. And so Operation TBA Freedom, um, it's a free service for any veteran, OIF, OEF, who has a documented brain injury or a suspected. Um, they can still help get some testing done for that. And I wouldn't say that necessarily a, a brain injury says you can't be healed or that there's only a certain type of therapy that's best. I think it's just good to understand that the impulsivity or the way that someone with a brain injury learns is a little bit different mm -hmm. than a neurotypical brain without a brain injury. And I know a lot of the service members I work with with brain injuries feel that they're permanently broken and that mm -hmm. they have a disease or a disorder that people can't see and that can add to that anger because they'll get caught up on words and somebody will get impatient with them. So you throw that difficulty with impulse control with that brain injury and a history of trauma and it, it can be really hard for those veterans to feel safe engaging in the world with somebody who doesn't understand that experience of the world or even their family members. It can be hard to be partnered with someone who has a brain injury who's having a hard time with impulse control or remembering the daily things of life. And and it's really important, I think, as you'd mentioned, um, you know, a, a TBI doesn't result in a loss of consciousness, but also one can can have a brain injury, but not have it result in chronic concerns. Right? I, yeah, I, I got knocked out on a jump in the late 90s, um, had a concussion. Welcome to 82nd. I got it check, checked out, um, but I never developed subsequent um, symptoms yeah. and, and I never received necessarily subsequent uh, brain injurious or physically injurious events. And so that's the thing I think people have a lot of, of misconceptions again around this TBI is that, well, if you had a concussion, then you're going to end up, you know, later in life with, you know, all these cognitive difficulties. And that's not necessarily the case. No, not necessarily the case at all. And again, I don't think there's a good formula for determining who's going to end up with a traumatic brain injury. Um, it can be re small, repeated expo um, exposures to blasts if they were way too close and they're running them in rapid succession. That may result in a mild TBI where someone else may hit their head really hard and have a loss of consciousness and not have any sustained symptoms from that. 
And I think overall that what that's what's making trauma treatment or mental health treatment in general difficult mm-hmm. is there is no easy testing necessarily. There is no formula to determine who's going to end up with what. And there's so many unknowns in the brain and how it's actually working that sometimes we are shooting in the dark. We're going on the most recent research knowing that there's more research coming down the pike and how brains heal. And and even with PTSD and Alzheimer's, Mm -hmm. they're finding significant correlation between unhealed PTSD and the development of Alzheimer's. Who knows, maybe brain injuries are in that mix too. It would be awesome if we had some way of really predicting better or of testing better. But I know so many veterans with trauma or brain injuries that just feel so misunderstood and feel Mm -hmm. so broken that they cannot be healed. And so I think just being here today, my main takeaway is healing is possible. It is, and and especially physical healing. And I think many veterans, even if they don't experience physical healing after so many years of, of, as you said, chronic pain and things like that, but the the delineation you made about physical versus psychological, right? A, A traumatic brain injury is a physical injury, whereas PTSD is a psychological injury or condition, if you will. But a lot of people think that the both sides of the same coin, right? That if you have PTSD, you have TBI or one or the other. But the trauma in traumatic brain injury is a physical trauma. And the trauma in post-traumatic stress disorder is a psychological trauma. Most definitely. And and it's hard because sometimes you'll have people who come back with permanent physical damage that they do have to live with the rest of their lives. And that may be a trauma that we can get the nightmares or flashbacks or hypervigilance to decrease. But then there's also a natural grief process that goes with a certain amount of trauma exposure that we can't necessarily fix. Mm -hmm. We can process through that grief that goes with those traumatic losses or traumatic experiences. But sometimes that grief stays too. So you're adding another layer on top of brain injuries, on top of trauma exposure, and that's the grief part. Um, I work with a number of veterans that were medically retired, and they'll tell me, I wanted to serve 26, 27. I got taken out. My war's not done. Yeah. And it adds another layer of complexity Mm -hmm. onto the mental health of service members specifically. And that goes to, and we were talking before, your, your, the cognitive approach. I mean, that's, it's not just response to the trauma or response to the physical injury, but it's what the veteran is telling themselves about what this has caused in my life. And that's, that's not, that's neurological in the sense that it's coming from the brain, but yeah. that's the way that they're thinking, yes. not as, that's a secondary result of exposure to this trauma. Yes. And that's why I blend EMDR with somatic therapy, so really looking at how the body is feeling as we're Mm -hmm. looking at those memories, but also adding in that cognitive component. I know one of my my service members this week, we were just talking about avoidance of going out in public. Mm -hmm. And so we used a a cognitive technique of saying, well, when was the last time you actually experienced violence Mm -hmm. actually to you? And they were like, well, it's it's been almost a decade. And Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, well, can you go out into public and remind yourself, use thought replacement and say, nothing bad has happened to me in 10 years, it's unlikely to happen now. And to blend those two models, to get at that unconscious process, and I'm sure we could debate that for hours on unconscious stuff, but to bring in those truly trauma-focused treatments and the cognitive um, component to help them re-engage and to catch in that, that moment when they're out or with, they're with their family. 
and and to replace that thought and to remind themselves maybe a positive mantra of i'm most likely safe here and i think that's one of the things that i've seen beneficial with military and veteran clients is if you can show them a process like a b c d e f g like if you can give them a framework they're like oh i get that right i can go you know step one two three four five and, and that's really where things like dialectical behavior therapy yep. or cognitive behavior therapy if you can say these are the steps you need to take to change from left to right a lot of veterans will say okay i get it now and to have that step-by-step -step process gives a sense of hope mm -hmm. to control exactly and to sit with someone and say i've seen this i know it can can work i know you can find true healing and this is what we do first this is where we go second and then eventually i'm going to have you do this it gives a teamwork a, a planned mission and definitely that sense of control for them it's hmm. another point i had a client one time who who said that a, a good therapist for veterans is really a nexus right we are a nexus of experiences right so that client who who you saw today maybe one of 10 clients you saw that day um, but you see all 10 of those clients and you see what works with some and what works with others. And so you become a nexus of, of the experience of the veteran, but also we are the nexus of our clinical training, hopefully, right? Continued clinical training, right? Yes. So we, we bring this, this nexus of our experience, what we see works with veterans, but also our clinical support. And again, providing that reassurance can offload some of that distrust in therapy. Most definitely. And that's what I will start with. If I've got a veteran who maybe has been through a number of therapists, couldn't find the right fit, I will tell them that I have seen people, and I will say point blank, I would bet my career that if we stay committed to this process, that we can get you healed. And I'll say I've seen it. I've seen a, a veteran who um, died, was hit in combat, died, survived, and they went symptom-free after treatment. And when they hear me say that, they'll go, Doc, are you serious? I'm like, I will bet my career. And to, to sit with them and to have that, that confidence with it. But then I do also one thing that might be a little bit weird when I am finishing treatment with a veteran. At the end, I'll say, I wanna ask you something. And they'll be like, okay. I was like, what do you wish I would have done different? Mm -hmm. And so I am constantly learning from my veterans. What do you wish I would have done different? What did you find that that was the most helpful. One very interesting thing I, I learned from my veterans is that they want session to start on time and end on time. Mm -hmm. I thought that was the most fantastic feedback I ever could have gotten because sometimes we want to run over and we're like, oh, we're right in the mm -hmm. middle of something. But what that veteran told me, actually they were active service. They said, I know that I can tolerate distress for 55 minutes. Mm -hmm. So as long as you hold that structure, I can go all in and to constantly be learning um, as neuroscience changes and as research changes it's an specifically with trauma and brain injuries there's just a vast amount of knowledge and to stay on top of it I think is a little bit daunting for some to think I need to be staying on top of that neuroscience to know what's best or what's coming out next and to share even that research with veterans mm -hmm. I'll print research for them hey mm -hmm. here's the top three per the VA what they say is the most effective here's the one I do if you don't like that let me find you somebody else and to be on that team with them and to not, as you mentioned earlier, sometimes they, they can see that look of fear in that therapist's face. But when they come in and, and I can say, hey, I'm on your team. And even if I'm not the right team leader, I'll find you the one who is. Tell me what you're needing. That 
meeting them right there where they are is probably the most important first step of just saying, I want to help and I believe I can, but what do you think? And I think that's something, again, that ther- that, that veterans, if you say that the veterans have a bad rap in the media, therapists don't have much of a better rap. <laughs> no, no, we you do know, not. <laughs> again, going back to the show Mindhunter, I don't know. Yeah. But, but, there's, but there's that idea of what veterans might think therapy might mm-hmm. be like, right? And it's not collaborative. It's, you know, Doc's going to throw pills at me or yep. they're just going to tell me what to do. Yeah. Right. They're going to they're going to tell me I'm crazy and tell me how to not be crazy. And there's not an idea of there being a collaborative effort. Yeah. And I get accused or told I'm very different than a lot of other therapists um, because I will say, hey, you're the expert on you. I did not live your life. I did not have your experiences. So you're the expert on you. I'm the expert on the books because I'm a big old nerd. And we work together as a team to figure out our route. Or I'll say, at first, I'm the driver. You're the gas and the brake. You get to tell me how fast or slow we're going. But again, if you think I'm off the mark, you tell me. Because I'm not a mind reader as much as I wish I was. But And, and I think you're definitely right. The misconceptions about what therapy is, it's not what they show on TV. Mm-hmm. And the number of times I could I get mad at the TV when they show therapists. Doing, I stopped watching. I, uh, I just don't watch therapy shows. No, no, because they, they present it like this freudian free association and when it comes to trauma treatment that's not what it is it's much more directive it's much more structured um and it can be a little bit of an adjustment i know once in a while i do get to butt some heads with some veterans who are used to the more supportive care just kind of how's your week been and that's not my approach at all um within that first couple sessions i'm sitting with that veteran saying where do you want to be how much time are you getting me or giving me and and how quickly do we need to move to get you there versus let's just kind of talk about those ongoing daily stressors. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not really my area of expertise, so I've kind of opted out of, of supportive care. But there is an education model um, or an education phase of what therapy is, especially as you were talking um, dialectical behavior therapy. There's so many different therapies that are effective and they look very different. So it can be disorienting to a veteran who's used to one model of treatment to go to a new therapist and have a completely different model of treatment. And sometimes that can cause mistrust. Sometimes they say, that's refreshing. This is different. Maybe I'll, I'll feel better this time. And unfortunately, there's not one treatment that fits all. No, no, there's definitely not. And I think that that's one of the challenges with mental health is sometimes people think that there there should be, but there's not with physical health either, right? That's that, that seeing that mental health needs to be differentiated a little bit. And so you also work with an organization called Given Hour, a nationwide network of volunteer mental health professionals support a wide range of populations, including veterans and first responders. Given Hour is an awesome organization. So Given Hour is a pro bono service nationwide where therapists sign up to provide one hour of free services to a service member or their family member every week. So sometimes this is a great arena for an active service member who who wants some support but doesn't want to get red flagged anywhere. Sometimes this is a service member who's gotten out and they haven't gotten their benefits set up yet. Or maybe a service member who was dishonorably discharged and doesn't have some of those benefits. And Given Hour has recently expanded to include a lot of other um, natural disasters and those kind of things. But it's this organization that really aims to make sure that any veteran who's needing care 
gets at least an entry point with a provider to get started on that process, all completely free to the veteran or their family members. And so you can find them. If I knew the website right off the top of my head, I would tell you. It's givenhour.org. And and so you can go on there and access their directory. And if you can't find someone in your area, you can email them and they'll they'll reach out and try to find a provider. Uh, So there are a lot of services out there. And I, I put this out there to any presentation I give in the community or online as I say, hey, if you're having trouble here in Colorado Springs finding a provider I mean this call me you don't have to work with me but I'll help you find somebody and so I spend a lot of time every week talking with veterans saying okay what type of provider are you looking for what kind of insurance do you have what time of day are you needing and what type of person do you think you could connect with because I think as much as I love being the clinician I also love making sure that people find the resources that they need Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the benefits of, of given hours. They don't necessarily restrict according to era of service, right? No. A lot of the times, um, you know, it's post 9-11 veterans or something like that, a, a certain era of veteran. But um, a given hour doesn't restrict according to era of service, type of service, like you said, discharge of service. That is correct. And and you're right. There are so many barriers to finding those treatments that I think that can become frustrating for veterans. Finding appropriate and adequate mental health care is a problem here in Colorado in general, specifically Colorado Springs right now, for any variety of reasons. Good news is the Colorado Psychological Association has a PTSD task force, um, and we're starting to move forward looking into that on what we can do. Um, So for any veteran listening, know that the barriers are there, but there are a ton of truly passionate people in this community. Um, I know Mount Carmel does a whole lot, Family Care Center, and there's a lot of private providers that truly enjoy helping veterans heal and getting back to the life that they deserve. And I think that, in, again, something we talked about on last week's show is veterans are used to overcoming obstacles, right? Um, yeah. They're used to um, doing that, but somehow it seems whenever there's an obstacle to seeking care, then they'll just stop, right? They, they won't even attempt to overcome the obstacle. They'll just retreat and go back in the other direction. And I have asked and explored that with a number of service members. And the, the response I always get is, well, I look weak. Mm-hmm. And I will look them dead in their face and say, the bravest person is the person who who sits down with a mental health provider. It's not weak to come in. It's actually extremely brave Mm -hmm. to to say, I'm going to go and sit with this stranger and hope that this stranger can help me heal. That's braver than anything in the world, Mm -hmm. most definitely. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. But also as a mental health professional, I, I encourage the same thing. So if people wanted to find out more about the work that you're doing, how could they do that? So I do have a website. It doesn't have a whole lot of information on it, but it is peakmindconsulting.com as in Pikes Peak. You can always call me at 719-357-6462. Or if you just have a general question, I'm always up to giving presentations or answering questions, even if you're not wanting to work with me. Um, And I have email at dremilyrodeman at gmail.com. So that's D-R-E-M-I-L-Y. R-A-D as in Delta, E as in Echo, M-A-N as in man at gmail.com. And I truly mean it. Even if you've got questions, you're not sure if you want to start therapy yet, please reach out to me. Reach out to any other provider that you you think might be able to help. Reach out because we're there. Absolutely. Thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. I hope that you appreciated my conversation with Dr. Radiman. We'd love to hear your thoughts. If you drop us an email at militarymind at FCCSprings.com. 
Next, I'd like to introduce this week's Homefront Military Network Partner of the Week, the Pikes Peak Workforce Center. The Pikes Peak Workforce Center connects vital businesses with work-ready job seekers or employment-driven services. They help residents of El Paso and Teller counties with career transition, whether they're employed, unemployed, or underemployed. These clients range from entry-level to professional, including youth, adults, people returning to the workplace, and those with barriers to employment. They provide job search and funded training opportunities, including 20 different job seeker workshops at no cost. In addition, the Pikes Peak Workforce Center hosts the largest virtual and in-person job fairs in Southern Colorado, as well as weekly hiring events. In 2020, they helped over 58,000 people, including answering over 33,000 phone calls and provided workshops to over 6,000 attendees. Additionally, they developed Upskill Pikes Peak, a no-cost online learning management system with hundreds of modules available on demand to help job seekers gain the skills that employers need before hiring them. The Pikes Peak Workforce Center has played a pivotal role in the regional recovery and upskilling of local workers across Teller County and the Colorado Springs metropolitan area. During 2020, over a thousand healthcare workers in the Pikes Peak region's three main hospitals were trained in new critical skills. They also assisted 65 of the region's key child care agencies and programs with funds to keep running, which included 375 workers who provided child care for over 1,800 children so 1,300 parents and families could continue to work and provide support. The Pikes Peak Workforce Center provides vital services to businesses. Last year, they provided assistance to more than 1,700 businesses and hosted nearly 100 hiring events and job fairs. They also granted fund to more than 30 companies to upskill hundreds of employees. Additionally, they provided robust support for sector partnerships in the automotive, construction, healthcare, and retail hospitality industries, giving them creative ways to develop their talent pipeline. The Pikes Peak Workforce Center continues to receive national, statewide, and local recognition. In 2020, they presented best practices at national meetings, including twice for the National Association of Workforce Boards. They completed over 100 media interviews last year and led a workforce center through a global pandemic to ensure the region's residents and businesses had access to the services they need. This includes setting up a site with 60 physically distanced computers in a temporary location in less than a month in June of 2020. In addition to their robust job seeker and business services, the Pikes Peak Workforce Center has a veterans team of dedicated professionals who are veterans themselves. This team provides intensive services to those who have significant barriers to employment. As fellow veterans, they're dedicated to helping transitioning military and veterans understand and align their skill sets with the available job opportunities in our region. Their goal is to provide veterans with the information they need to make confident career choices. In addition to the veterans team, the Pikes Peak Workforce Center employs a military relations specialist who ensures that the region's businesses, community partners, and government representatives are kept up to date on military, veteran, and spouse hiring initiatives and services that support gainful employment for this population. Additionally, the Pikes Peak Workforce Center is the only workforce center in the state of Colorado that provides much-needed federal employment webinars and workshops. The federal job search can be complicated, but the workshops they offer provide significant help for veterans and other job seekers to learn how to effectively write a federal resume as well as navigate the usajobs.gov employment website. The Military Relations Specialist also runs the Military Veteran and Spouse Coalition Meeting that is specifically designed for business representatives, community partners, and government representatives who endeavor to promote military veteran and spouse hiring. 
For more information on this coalition, please call the Pikes Peak Workforce Center at 719-667-3700. The employees at the Pikes Peak Workforce Center have genuine servants' hearts. Each day, they encourage and direct people who need a job but lack the skills to return to the workforce. Every week, they help businesses avoid layoffs and learn how to attract and retain talent through skills-based hiring practices so that they can keep their doors open. The Pikes Peak Workforce Center changes lives in our community and helps strengthen our local economy and vitality. To learn more about how the Pikes Peak Workforce Center can help you, call 719-667-3700 or visit ppwfc.org. So I appreciate you taking the time to check out the Homefront Military Network Partner of the Week. If you want to find out more about the Homefront Military Network, you can find them online at homefrontmilitarynetwork.org. And if you'd like to find out more about the Family Care Center, you can find more about them at fcsprings.com. The Family Care Center is the Pikes Peak region's leading provider of comprehensive behavioral health for service members, veterans, and their families. They prioritize you and your family with a range of outpatient mental health services, including individual, couples, group, and family therapy, as well as medication management. Heighten your emotional wellness and receive the professional care that you need from the caring and highly skilled team at the Family Care Center. So thank you for taking the time to listen to the show. It'd be great to hear your feedback. I'd like to answer any questions you might have or what you would like to hear about. What topics about military and veteran mental health are you interested in? Send us an email at militarymind at FCCSprings.com and there's a chance that we'll discuss it on an upcoming show. I'd also like to remind you that the information provided on this show is for educational purposes only. While I am a licensed mental health professional, I'm not your licensed mental health professional. If what we discussed on this episode brings up concerns for you, it's highly recommended that you consult with a licensed mental health professional. Stay tuned for another great show next week, and until then, remember, you're not alone, ever. You've been listening to Inside the Military Mind, addressing mental health and wellness for service members, veterans, and their families. Sponsored by Family Care Center, Behavioral Health Services. Our family caring for your family. FCSprings.com. Tune in every Saturday at 11 a.m. for Inside the Military Mind on KPPF and listen to the companion podcast on Podbean. Family Care Center is a comprehensive outpatient behavioral health clinic providing critical mental health support to service members, veterans, family members, and our local community. Family Care Center focuses on the mental health and wellness of those who have served our country's military by providing best in-class evidence-based therapy, medication management, and transcranial magnetic stimulation. Family Care Center's clinical staff is dedicated to meeting every client's outpatient behavioral health care needs. This is Dr. Chuck Weber, inviting you to learn more at fcsprings.com. Family Care Center, our family caring for your family.